If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. and uh, I want to introduce to you Phil Williams. Phil is uh, part of why the room no longer looks like a nursing home chapel in 1987. Like it, uh, <laughs> come on. Phil, uh, Becca Boyd and my wife Shannon are, uh, were part of the design, but Phil was the guy that had to absolutely put some of these ideas into reality, and God bless him. God knows how much of a calling that is to uh, listen to these two as they have ideas and to, and to keep... I'm, no, no, I'm just saying. It's <laughs> no, and you always need that, Shannon. Every minute, every day. If you're looking for me, I'll and be digging out And there was a team. There was a team. There was Carrie. There yeah, was, was a young lot, men right? and, and women, and we all came together. Carol stained everything. Yeah, where's uh, she at? Carol, she's here. a guy named Chris, a piece there, and his family. It was a great coming together. But uh, today I'm going to read scripture, which is, I'm not a pastor, but I am a carpenter. Which is more than a yeah. <laughs> Jesus was a carpenter. Uh, I was real nervous, and I was serious sitting here, like, deep in thought for this reading, which is really not my forte, but I... Love doing it. With a voice like that? And my wife said, be joyful reading the word. Oh, man, it was just that easy. Thank you, babe. Can you say babe in church? I no, do. No. I've said worse. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, sir. <laughs> now, this is chapter one, Ephesians. Who is Paul writing from where prison, that he was there for two years in Rome. Uh, he visited Ephesus, the church for about three years and he worked there and he fellowshiped and he loved the people and he was writing him a letter. This is where we're gonna come in. And uh, we're starting with verse three. We're gonna go to a 14 or 11. And um, he starts off and it's beautiful. He starts off by saying, blessed God, the Father of our Jesus Christ. So here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time, the unique all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. 
Thanks, Phil. Father, would you give us insight into your word today as we, um, as we dig deep into your scriptures? I just, my prayer is, Lord, that it would be what you promised. It's alive and it's real and it's active and it's now, not just an academic exercise. Ask for it to be the light that you promised, the lamp that you assured us, and we would receive it today. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm a recovering weasel. I don't know if you've been to Weasel's Anonymous. <laughs> weasel. And if you don't believe me, in 1993, too, I had, uh, it was before Shannon and I were married. I uh, dated a girl that I, the only, the amount of thought I put into it was, I wonder what it's like to date a tall girl. <laughs> and I was just that shallow. And as it turns out, it's just like dating a short girl, just, just a girl. And... Uh, the problem was, uh, she was, we just didn't, we weren't, this, how do I say this? Um, for instance, when the Country Music Awards were on, she wanted to watch the Oscars. Now, there are people who love the Oscars. Congratulations. I just wasn't one of them. I didn't do the Oscars party. I didn't do the, put the names in, you know, to see who's going to win. I didn't even know who half the people were. I just wanted to watch Toby Keith. It's the second Toby Keith reference in two sermons. How about that? Um... <laughs> And so I, I, but that was a, like how big of a weasel I was. I was like, I don't, and I don't, how do I, how do I break up with this girl now? I, like, so I tried the, it's not you, it's me. And then I tried, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> um, and you know how it is when you're younger, some of you guys are in there right now, like I broke up with her, but it didn't take. And so I had to go back in and, and so then I found the, 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 the kryptonite to this relationship was that I had uh, what I thought was a job offer in Atlanta, Georgia to go be a booking agent. I didn't even know the difference between an agent or a manager. I just know he had a mullet and earrings. And so I, I, I call her, and we have this little thing, and I'm like, oh, I know, it's bad, but like, I don't do long-distance relationships. So I, and, that, and it took. Um, and, but I get to Atlanta, and there's no job. But like, I, I fly there just to basically meet uh, this guy named, who's still a friend to this day, Chuck Tilly. Some of you guys might know him in this room. Uh, and so I go to, I have to go back now. So I've literally, I've told everybody, I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to be a booking agent, blow this popsicle stand. I'm out of here. And so I had to come back to Tulsa with my tail tucked firmly between my legs, humiliated. By the way, humility and humiliation share the same root word. So when you pray to be humbled, I always love it when I see something awesome has to somebody. Oh, this is just so humbling. I appreciate that you want it to be humbling. But what's humbling is when you don't get the job and you have to go tell everybody that you're humiliated that I'm not nearly as cool as I thought I was. And I'm such a weasel, I never even called her. And I look back at that part of my life and realize that Jesus loves weasels just like me and just like you. And I think, like, how silly is this little story, this little vignette of my life, which is just a tiny little snapshot. Shannon remembers something. I was not... Uh, her, her friends warned me about, or her, no, warned her about me. They didn't, nobody warned me about her. Warned her about me. <laughs> Everybody's like, you better marry her fast because she comes to her senses. But, but I look back on that part of my life and think, man, was that even part of God's plan? I understand for those of you that were downstairs for the first session, it got a little spirited talking about predestination versus free will. 
And so I look back at a life, part of this, my life, and think, is, this, is even this part of his plan? Was me being a weasel part of his plan? And the thing about being a recovering weasel is you're never really in full recovery, right? It's just always, I got like the chip now of 25 years of weasel free, or, you know, but I'm, uh, I'm just still hanging on to Jesus. And when you look at this passage, the reason why Ephesians is so exciting to me is Paul is a recovering weasel as well. A, a, a murdering, conniving. And so when I think of a guy like Paul who did what he did, which was some pretty heinous stuff, to write these words of Ephesians 1 is pretty profound. And by the way, this sentence, Ephesians 3 through 11, you that are students of the word probably already know this, it is the longest sentence in the Bible. The reason why Phil had to take breaths in between was it's 202 words long. In the original Greek, you talk about a run-on sentence, Mark Twain would have rolled over in his grave. Like this is a long sentence. No English translation tries to actually make it all one, but there's a lot of commas. Did you notice the amount of commas in this? And the question when you see a sentence, English teachers, you know, is what is the subject of the sentence? And when your sentence is 200 words long, because, you know, you look for the predicate and the noun, and you're going to find, well, there's like a lot of predicates in a 202-word sentence. So I'm going to help you and tell you that the point of this verse, the, the, this 202-word sentence, the subject is God. And if you look there in verse 9, 10, and 11, you see the point of this entire thing, the subject of this sentence, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for, his, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. And in him we've in, in, uh, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The subject of the sentence is God and his work from time immemorial until this day. To put it another way, if you look at it this way, verse 9, if you're a note taker, is that there is a plan. Verse 11, everything is in the plan. So verse 9, there's a plan. Verse 11, everything in history is in the plan. And verse 10, Jesus is the point of the plan. It breaks down just that simple and just that easy. There is a plan, verse 9 Chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, the first half of verse 10, for the fullness of time. God has had a plan since the moment Eve sinned, since the moment there was a serpent. For before that time, there was a plan. And the cool thing about it is you're a part of it. Everything in history has been a part of it. And the point is that Jesus will one day bring everything under him, everything. Every good decision, every bad decision, every stupid thing, every smart thing will all be brought under him, heaven and earth both. And that's an important sidebar, by the way, because for those of us grown up in Western Christianity, country song, we'll pray to the man upstairs, right? We separate God, heaven up here, and us down here, I don't know where they got that idea, but they can't get it from the Bible because that's not where it's at. 
It's a Western idea that God is this up here and we're down here. And it really works handy if you want to do your own thing. Like it's super helpful if you're just trying to get your own agenda done. If I just put God over here in the sidelines up there someday. But the end of Scripture, don't forget, is not the end of the book. The end of Revelation is not about us being pulled out of here to there. It's about there being pulled here. He's going to bring it all together, heaven and earth. And we talked about last week how awesome that is, that heaven isn't just some faraway ethereal thing with me in a, uh, in a tunic playing a harp. And Thank God for that. <laughs> you can't unsee that. <laughs> that the plan... For right now, as Jesus is pulling it all together under him in this side of heaven, and we're going to talk about this next week, and I am super fired up for this. Verse chapter 2, somewhere around verse 10, I believe, somewhere, he says that we are created and you are created in, in Christ to do good works. Not just, by the way, the ho-hum, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang out with girls who do that, you know, the whole thing you heard when you were a kid. But... I mean, there's, morals are important. Don't, I don't mean to diminish morals. But that's not, he's to do good works. You are created uniquely. In one sense, we're all the same because we're created in Christ. But in another sense, we are super unique. So Jace is uniquely created to do things that only Jace can do, bring something that only Jace brings to the table, created in Christ to do amazing things. And until he returns, until we are all set under Jesus in this awesome thing, until then you get to go do amazing things this side of heaven as a conduit of the Spirit this side of heaven. That's part of the plan. You're in it. Like We're all in it. And that plan for us involves every morning, every afternoon, not just tomorrow, like when I wake up in the morning, Monday, I don't know if you know this. Some of you guys are former pastors or current pastors, whatever, but there's a thing called the preaching hangover. I don't know if you're familiar with it. On Monday morning, I am worthless. I am sleepy. I'm dragging. Because I'm, I've preached. But you know, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead on Monday was the same one that he raised today on. So that power is there and that plan is there for us to do good things on this side of heaven, that there is a plan. And I would say that for me and for you, if we don't walk out with anything else today, remember that you are part of this plan, that there is a plan and you're in it. And that the second thing is that not only is the plan and you're in the plan, but that everything that happens in history is part of the plan. And for those of you that were down in the basement and for service, you're like, we already talked about this. Some of us think it's this and some of us think it's that. Some of us think that everything has been predetermined and some of us think that we have free will. Which, by the way, parenthetically, you're not alone. That question has been wrestled with since the beginning of time. One of the earliest recorded plays or poems is a guy named Sosceles writes about a guy named Oedipus. I'm sure all of you have read it. Don't, if you have read it, don't admit it. But the play was about a prophecy in this book, and it was, uh, I don't know, like a, a thing he wrote. So Sosceles writes this thing about this guy named Oedipus. And Oedipus, the, the entire premise was that he had been prophesied that Oedipus would kill his dad and marry his mom. Super creepy. And so as the story unfolds, Oedipus does everything he can do to try to undo this prophecy. And everything he does only puts him one step closer until ultimately he... Kills his dad and marries his mom. And we think, like, Netflix has got problems today. 
That was, a, that was like a thousand years ago, like forever ago. Man was questioning with that, or struggling with that very, very question. I mean, you can't even get into a sci-fi movie, right, without wondering, without questioning, without that. I don't know if you guys have seen Slumdog Millionaire, but at the beginning, what does it say? It is written. The question when you go back in time is the same question as when you go forward. And I don't know if you've read the book by Stephen King, but there's a a Hulu series on it. But Stephen King's book is about going back in time and stopping the assassination of John F. Kennedy and how the world would be different. I mean, even the great, the great Marty McFly. <laughs> this is not a new question. Do I have a, and the question is really simple. Do I have a free will? Can I make choices? Or is there a plan that I can't escape? That's the basic question. It's been asked since the beginning of time. Now, if you ask science, science tells us, physics tells us that there's this thing called predeterminism. And in the, the world of physics, in, in, in the smallest and the largest, they would say there's theories in string theory and physics that say that there is no such thing as free will. That, that there are people that literally have gone to the point saying there is no, in fact, I think it's this morning's New York Times, there's a story talking about there really wasn't a beginning of the universe, only the beginning of time. I made it through about halfway through the article before I had to put another quarter in my brain to get it to work again. I was like, you have used up all of your thing. Because this has been a question that's been around forever. And it's a question that today, is there a free will? Do I have a choice? There is the physics, physicist science would say that you don't. That there is no such thing as history or future and that... I mean, it literally would blow your mind what these physicists will sit around and talk about when they're asking, do I have a free will? Or has it all been determined? The Bible would say that somebody like Bertrand Russell, who would fall under uh, the physics category, uh, if you guys, I'm sure lots of fans of Bertrand Russell in this room, but Bertrand Russell would say that, hey, this has all been determined, and it's, but you, it's, it's hopeless and it's useless because after you're gone, that your hopes, your dreams, your ideas, even the way you feel right now, it's all going to burn up when the solar system collapses, so it's hopeless and it's despair. Bertrand Russell, the Bible would say, is wrong on one side of the extreme. And on the other side, we can say that Macbeth was also wrong. Shakespeare was wrong when he says in Macbeth, if you saw the movie last year, that history is just a a tale told by an idiot. That life just happens. Whatever you do, there's there's no plan. There's no control. There's no hope. It's just a tale told by an idiot. We might as well all die. So in, in the side of mankind, in the human, when you take the Bible out of it, you look at the science thing that says that it's all been predetermined. Or on the humanist side, in the words of the great Professor Brown, it's your future, it's your choice, go make it a good one. Make it the best one you can. Now, if you ask the Bible this question, do I have a plan that's been predetermined and I cannot escape, or do I have free will and I can do whatever I want and it's my choices? You ask the Bible that question and the answer is yes. The reason why there can be such spirited debate in a room like there was this morning is because both sides can give you the, well, what about this verse? 
argument. Now, the problem with the what about this verse argument is both of them are in the Bible. What about this and what about that? He says, choose this day whom you will serve. And he says here that 11 times in Ephesians, they have predetermined and predestined. The Bible says to you in a much more nuanced way than any man has ever said it, in a much more, it grapples with it in a way that mankind can't because mankind wants to go to this extreme or to that extreme. And the Bible says, is there a plan? Has it all been predetermined? Or do you have a choice? The Bible says yes. And you're like, how is that even possible? It's like you're contradicting. It's called a paradox. And if you don't understand what a paradox is, you're living in one right now because these lights are projecting light into this room. What science has taught us is that in light, that light behaves as a wave. And a wave has no matter. There's no mass to it. It's a wave. But science also knows that light sometimes behaves like a particle, which has a mass. And so the question is, is light a wave and has no mass, or is light a particle and has mass? The answer is yes. Why is that? Science doesn't know why. They just know that it is. God is light. The entrance of his word brings light. You are the light of the world. Over and over again in scripture, the Bible uses a duality in science to, as a picture of who God is. And we can look and say, I don't know how it's possible. Only that it is. I, can't, I don't understand how it's possible that every choice I make is my free will, and somehow it was yet predetermined, and both don't contradict, but actually make God bigger, not smaller. And he's a, what's the old saying? If a God is big enough to be understood, he's not big enough to be worshipped. So I can relax. Because God's will says that, hey, there's a plan, and everything in history is part of that plan. Everything in your history, me being a weasel, God could still use it as part of his big plan. He doesn't waste any of it. There's such a great picture of this in the book of Acts, chapter 27, when Paul was getting on a boat. And on this boat, there's a great storm. And in the storm, they're, they're, they think they're all going to die. And Paul tells everybody, hey, look, everybody stay on this boat. I had a, a, an angel appear to me. God has said that nobody is going to die. Everybody says, this is great. God has said it. God has decreed it. We're all going to be okay. And just a few verses later, they're trying to lower lifeboats, and Paul says, no, 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 nobody leave, because if you leave, we're going to die. So what is it? Is God say we're not going to die, or are we going to die? What he's saying, what we see in that, is the truth, and that is that your plan is predetermined and it's going to be okay, and your choices matter. Your choice matters. My choice matters. And yet it's all going to be part of the plan. My choice in 1993, thinking I'm going to just bulldoze out of town, I mean, I'm, I, I kind of laugh about it now, but I'm, it was humiliating not to get that job. I was embarrassed. I had to go tell my friends. I had to put that green apron on again and go get the hot sauce for customers. I'm like, I'm going to be here forever now. But if I hadn't have gone back to Tulsa, there wouldn't have been a Shannon Tyler today. Ashley wouldn't be here. Even my weaselness, God somehow said, you can't be smart enough or dumb enough to avoid the plan that I have for you. 
that it's all in the plan. History from around the world has all been in the plan, and my good decisions and my bad decisions, God's not going to waste them. We see another example of it in Scripture way back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember Jacob and Rachel? The great love story of all times when Jacob, I think it's around chapter 29 of Genesis. Jacob has wandered away. He's running for his life from Esau. He sees this beautiful woman named Rachel at a well. And if you remember the story, he, he is, he's smitten with her. And he's trying to muster up the courage. And she's coming. She's a shepherd girl, so it means she's strong and, you know, probably like, you know, UFC fighter kind of girl, just tough and good looking. And, but they come and they've got to move the rock off of the well to, to water their sheep. And so what does Jacob do? Jacob goes and actually, he, he moves it all by himself to impress her. And then it says that he cried. <laughs> I never even tried that one. I'm going to try that this afternoon. And all he wanted was Rachel. That's it. And he made a deal with her father, worked for seven years. And you remember this story? And he finally gets to the wedding, and the way that their weddings work and the way that their traditions were with veils and tents and there was no, like, nightlight or whatever, you know. He marries her that night, and he wakes up the next morning next to her sister, Leah. Ah! <laughs> felt like he got hosed, felt like he got cheated. And all he wanted was Rachel, and so he makes a deal. He works for another seven years. Now he gets her at the beginning. I mean, he's got to work another seven years for Rachel. And he says to Rachel and Leah, they're gonna, and you see there's this race to have babies. And you can look at this. It's almost like God's like, what were you thinking, God? Why didn't you just sit down and tell them? You guys are dysfunctional. Jerry Springer's going to do a show on you someday. They start having a race. He's got babies. The handmaid's having babies. Having babies. Everybody's having babies. Trying to make him happy. The babies that would ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, to Rachel, the, the woman that he loved and wanted so bad, all she does is make him miserable. Because she sees Leah having babies and she's like, oh, give me. At one point she screams, you give me children or I'll die. Like it's his fault. I mean, it's clearly working. He's having babies, so it's, it's not his fault. Is that too much? <laughs> There's a couple people like that. <laughs> Give me children, else I'll die. Ironically enough, or destiny enough, when she's given birth to her second son, she dies and breaks his heart into a million pieces. And life would go on and more dysfunction would unfold and Joseph would be thrown in a well and his brothers would sell him into slavery. And, and it's almost like God just steps back and says, look, I'm going to let you make these choices. It's, it's almost like he's not, it's not true, but it's almost like he's, where are you during all this, God? And you fast forward into Genesis 49 and Jacob is at the end of his life. This dysfunctional family this heartbreak, and Rachel, the only woman he ever loved. At the end of his life, Genesis 49, somewhere around verse 20-ish, 
when he's on his deathbed and he's saying, you're blessed for this. And Joseph, you're like a, a vine that goes over the walls. And, but he gets to the end. He says, and, and bury me next to, listen to me. He says, bury me next to, not Rachel, but Leah. Bury me with Leah. The thing that he thought he was so smart and such a weasel. I mean, his name was Heel Snatcher. Conniving guy his whole life. And God still used those choices. And here's, you know how I know that Leah was God's will for him? Jesus was a lion of the tribe of, come on, you know, Judah. Who did Leah give birth to? Judah. And isn't God so kind? Because even through Rachel would come salvation as well. God was in all of the mess and all the broken pieces and all the bad decisions and all the stuff. And God somehow said, I'm going to let you make these decisions and I'm still going to let this plan unfold. A plan that was so amazing that in all this dysfunction, Joseph has been thrown in a well, he's been sold into slavery, Jacob lives his life miserable thinking his son is dead and gone and one day he finds himself sitting in an Egyptian palace with his son. A son who in chapter 50, verse 20, says that what you guys meant for harm, God meant for good. Their bad decisions, God is so infinite that even their bad decisions became part of the plan. See, God had a plan that Messiah, that Judah would bring Messiah through his bloodline, through Abraham would be a a father of a great nation. There were 70 people. And in a famine at that time, 70 people would have been wiped off the face of the earth or at the very least be taken into captivity and then wiped off the face of the earth. There was no nation. It was just a really big, disgusting, dysfunctional family. And if you want to build a great nation who doesn't have an army yet, where do you put them? You put them in the nation with the greatest army on the face of the earth. It was a great place to incubate a nation. Egypt. What you meant for harm, God said, I'm going to use for good. There is a plan. Everything in history is a part of the plan. And Jesus is the point of the plan. Because someday, every decision that you and I have made this side of heaven, the ones that brought us joy and the ones that brought us heartbreak. By the way, why didn't God just sit down Jacob and say, look, I got a, like Festivus, like I got a lot of problems with you people. Just sit, you, why, you are an idiot. Why, why did he not just sit down and just give him a talking to? Because God deals in reality. The Bible deals in reality. And in reality, when is the last time that you changed a position on something when someone lectured you about it? God knows how we work, how we're wired. It's how he made us. So we're wired that I'm going to have to go through this because that's how I learned that I was a weasel, not because someone told me. My history taught me that. And it's also the only way that I can know how much God loves me. How he loves you. He loves weasels like me. He loves weasels like Jacob, like Paul. And I didn't learn that from a sermon. I learned it from my life. It's one of the most practical things that the Bible shows us. 
so much more nuanced than what man has attempted. That on the one hand, like Paul, I've got to be alert because my choices matter. And on the other hand, I can radically relax because there's a plan. And I don't have to explain how it is. It just is. The Bible says, though, someday I'm going to be fully known as I fully know. Someday I'm going to be like, no more quarters in here. I got it. But for now, I get to trust him and be faith to be utterly alert and practically at peace. Because one day there is a king who is coming back. What a story, by the way. Where do we even get that story? It's all over literature, the story of a kingdom that's under oppression, a kingdom that's being abused and that's suffering, and then this great king comes and saves the day. Like, history doesn't teach us that. What history teaches us is that kings are narcissists and jerks and abusers. But somewhere in our spirit, in our soul, is a story, a memory trace of a king that will come and set it right one day. Maybe that's what Ecclesiastes means when it says that he's written eternity on your hearts. Because on my heart somewhere, I resonate with that story, even though history says it's not true. On my heart, there's a story that says that there is a king coming, and he will set it right, and I will bow my knee. And if you're a Western, you think, well, that's weird. Why would I bow my knee to a king? Here's what I know about our king. When they, we talked about it Easter, and you were freshly reminded that on the day when he was whipped and beaten, that it was the flagellum, and many of you know this, and on the end of that whip, there were nine straps, and on the end was little bones and metal, and it would hit him in the back and pull him apart. His bones weren't broken, but his joints became unhinged. Jesus was pulled apart so that you could be put together. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that this world is falling apart. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you a way to know it. Go to your kid's room and look at the dishes that they have in there from dinner from two weeks ago. That once tasted good and smelled great, but the second law of thermodynamics is everything is going to disorder. Cook a chicken and go set it in your your living room for a couple weeks. It's going to disorder. (laughs) It's coming apart. That is the second law of thermodynamics, and it's true of this world, but Jesus is coming to put it all back together. Colossians 3 says he holds it all together. He was pulled apart so that you could be put together, so that we could be made whole. That's why I will bow my knee to a king like that. And you will too, and it won't be because you're being forced to, but because you want to. It won't be because you have to. It'll be because you get to, because he has had a plan from before time was even here. The New York Times was right that there was a point where time started. All they're doing is just confirming the Bible. It's taken 2,000 years for them to figure out what God knew all along. There was a plan. Everything in history is part of that plan, you included. And Jesus is the point of the plan. He is going to bring all things under him. That's why Ephesians is so awesome. On this side of heaven, the first four, three or four books of the New Testament, the first four letters, speak a lot about Christ in you. Ephesians, Paul takes a decidedly different term when he talks about you in Christ. Different because if you and I understood that there's a plan, that it's going to be okay, that God is in the middle of all of it, our good decisions and our bad decisions. If I understand that, 
do you understand how powerful of a Christian we would be? Because I'm no longer tied up into my past because I've, I've done so many dumb things. I've made so many mistakes. I don't live in the past anymore. Stephen King's novel, he talks about those that mess with the past, the past messes back. You mess with the past, the past messes with you. And for those of you that have lived a life of regret and made bad decisions, you know that if you live in the past, the past messes with you. And some are frozen in paralyzed analysis, paralysis, because I'm looking to the future, and I'm so afraid I'm going to make a mistake. I'm so afraid I'm going to fail, because our society has said that failure is wrong, and you should be pushed down and pushed away if you fail to be ashamed and miserable. I can move into the future with no fear of failure, because I know that God's going to work it into the plan even if I fail. So I'm free of the bondage of the past. I'm free of the fear of the future. And I'm free with power for today. That I can live right now in the right now with the same power that raised, raised Jesus from the dead, understanding that there was a plan the whole time. My choices matter, but God's going to take care of me. I might miss the boat on this one, but there'll be another boat. God's plan ultimately, maybe this side of heaven, you think, oh, I'm still living in the middle of it, and I'm an old man or an old woman. The plan isn't fully completed until you stand in front of him, and we're all under Christ together. The story isn't even over. But I know God. It says in Second uh, Ephesians 2 that he's created you in Christ with a plan. By the way, that word plan, purpose in verse 10 of Ephesians 1 is the word bulas, bulan, which is the word we get blueprint from. The architect has drawn your life ahead of time. He's drawn my life ahead of time. I have a friend who's doing a fairly large corporate uh, commercial project, with, and the architect has drawn these plans, and they ran into a pretty big snag, a snafu that was beyond their control. It's going to be a delay. There's an obstacle, but you know what? The architect's plan will still be done. It's just going to take a different road. So there might be obstacles in the way of your plan, but there's an architect who is good and is kind and who loves you, who has designed your life and my life and has designed the entire universe and your plan's going to be okay. I hope, even if tomorrow you wake up and I wake up just a little more aware of that, just a little more at peace with that idea. The reason that question of uh, is there a plan or am I free will, the reason it's never been answered sufficiently is it's unanswerable because only God, the God of the universe, could understand how those two work together. How throughout science alone, there are paradoxes that nobody can answer. They only know what it is. They don't know why. Why is it okay with science but not with God? Of course, he's the guy that made light. He is light. Of course, it's going to be a duality. Would you stand with me? I want to pray that, that, that these words have downloaded into your heart and my heart, that they become real, and that you understand in your everyday life right now, and the next week we'll talk about what it really looks like to have heaven on earth, to really look like to be in Christ every day. But I hope that for those like me that have been professional weasels, that you have a moment today just to forgive yourself and to know that God didn't waste your pain, he didn't waste your good choices or your bad choices. He makes it all, what does he say in Romans 8? All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What do you think Paul was talking about? The guy who killed Christians for a living said all things 
work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't have to carry that anymore. I give it to him. I'm not paralyzed by my past. And those of you that are afraid because maybe I've failed in the past, and you're afraid, man, shake it off. In the words of the great poet Taylor Swift, shake it off <laughs> and move forward into the future that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, this mystery, this gospel, you've made known the mystery to us, this good news. Didn't say you explained it to us. You just made it known to us. And we understand this gospel that you are in all things, that there has always been a plan. My prayer, God, is that it doesn't just exist in this ethereal atmosphere, but in our everyday life. Today, we're going to make decisions. Can you just let us rest in the power of understanding that our choices have consequences and that you also have a plan? That somehow could we rest in the tension of that today? Let us set aside every weight and everything that would pull us aside and, and run. Run with passion, with love towards the promise that you have for us. It's in your name that we pray.